morning. My name is uh, Wade, and um, just want to give you guys a little bit of a preview um, of the next couple of weeks. So, um, as Andrew mentioned in his prayer, we um, we have an interim pastor in place. We're beginning the search for a lead pastor. So this is super exciting. Um, this is we're just entering into season. I think of um, anticipation and looking forward to what God is doing, and we're. We get to look forward with um, happiness and joy, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'm not going to be here next week. I actually won't be preaching the next couple of weeks. Next week, my brother, um, his name is Harry. He's going to be pre- he's like my literal literal brother, not just my brother in Christ, but my literal brother, my blood brother, Harry. He will be preaching um, next week here, and the following week, our interim pastor, um, Tom Savage, he'll be preaching here. So, um, super excited for that. Um, I'm not going to be around, so say hi to my brother. Um, and uh, I think he'll, he'll appreciate that. So um, a lot to look forward to, not just in a couple of weeks, but just in the coming months. Um, uh, we're looking forward to uh, what God is going to do here at Indelible Grace Church. So we're glad that you're along for the ride. Uh, we are looking at 1 Corinthians again this week, and the passage is in, is in your bulletin. Um, it's behind me if you're watching online. Thanks for joining us. Um, this is 1 Corinthians chapter Two verses 6 through 10. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is the Word of God. And uh, let me begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis. If we find ourselves, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Um, you may have heard this quote before. It's one of C.S. Lewis's more well-known quotes. And he wrote this after he became a Christian. So if you know the story of C.S. Lewis, he actually grew up in a religious home. Um, he, he went to Sunday school. Um, he went to church as a youngster. And that meant that he, theological concepts and religious language, um, these were familiar to him. But as he grew up, as he continued on um, through his education, the faith that he was taught made less and less sense to him. And though he made attempts to understand what the Christian faith was teaching, he became more disillusioned with the idea of God and the church. And as he studied the Bible, um, as he grew older, he he realized there were questions he had that he he thought he couldn't find answers for in the Bible. And he was frustrated that he couldn't answer those questions. He was frustrated and disappointed that if there was a God, that he hadn't revealed himself clearly to him. And he continued to look for the truth. And you can see in his earlier writings, um, there is this search for something transcendent and bigger than him. Um, that it took years, and after wrestling with many of the difficult questions he had, after having many conversations with his friends, um, one of his more well-known friends is J.R.R. Tolkien. If you've been uh, following the, uh, I think Amazon Prime has the Lord of the Rings series. That's the guy. 
Um, and J.R. Tolkien was instrumental in bringing C.S. Lewis to faith when he was in his early 30s. And we know all this because there are biographies of C.S. Lewis. He wrote extensively about it. But later on, um, he, he said, he said after he, he became a believer, um, he described it that there was a mass of bluebells making a carpet on the earth. And he became a Christian in September. Um, and scholars, they realized uh, that doesn't make sense because bluebells, this is a type of flower, they don't bloom in September. They bloom later in the year. So they think either C.S. Lewis was mistaken or he um, has an overactive imagination. What's going on? Um, an author by the name of Rebecca Reynolds points this out. This a seeming contradictory um, chronological mistake. Um, did Lewis make a mistake? Perhaps, but I don't think so. I think Lewis was offering a wink to the astute. I think he meant that during those first few moments of finally beginning to see, he was walking in a realm in which the blue flower always blooms. So this is her explanation. Maybe C.S. Lewis wasn't, didn't get it mistaken. Maybe he entered into a new reality in which if you read his um, see it, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia, where it's always spring, where um, the flowers are always blooming, where things are always beautiful. Now, what would it be like for us to live in light of a reality in which, for Lewis, in which the bluebells are always blooming? Or to put it another way, what would our lives be like if we actually lived like we live, if we lived in a reality that transcends the one we're living in right now? Were we made for another world, like C.S. Lewis says? We've been talking about the nature of the church and what ministry is supposed to look like as we've gone through 1 Corinthians. And now we're talking about something transcendent and another type of reality. What does that have to do with the scripture? Uh, we've been looking at the, uh, the foolishness of God's message to the world and the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. We've been looking at how the powerful of the world and the weakness of those in the church, how those contrast. Um, Paul brings up the, the eloquence of orators and rhetoricians, and he speaks of the trembling of God's messengers. And today we're going to look at these two realities that Paul writes of in second in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, this other reality that C.S. Lewis writes of. So my hope this morning is that we would understand that we really do belong to another realm. That we can experience, then what we can experience with our senses. And perhaps like C.S. Lewis, we can say with him again, let me read the quote I read to you earlier. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Were you made for another world? That's the question. Um, we have three points today. Uh, number one, temporal wisdom. Number two, timeless wisdom. And number three, the revelation of the spirits. So when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 a few weeks ago, we discussed that those who the world would consider wise. So there are the scribes and the debaters. These are the people who shape our culture. These are the ones that we pay attention to. They influence how we think about Politics or culture or society. They influence how we budget and how we spend our time. And in verse 6 of today's passage, Paul speaks of 
the type of wisdom that comes from people like those he referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the wisdom of the age, these um, purveyors of this wisdom, this temporal wisdom. In his book, Disappearing Church, there's a guy by the name of Mark Sayers. He's the author. And actually, let me plug a um, podcast. Uh, Go to Spotify or whatever you listen to podcasts on. Uh, Look for Rebuilders, and um, it'll get you caught up on uh, what is happening in the world. And Mark Sayers, I feel like he has really excellent commentary from a pastor's perspective on what's happening in the world. Where are we headed? How do we as a church respond He wrote a book called Disappearing Church a few years ago, and he identifies the beliefs that provide the dominant framework for living in the 21st century West. So that's you and me. So here are seven beliefs that drive how we think about how to live and reality today. So the first is this. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. The second belief is this. Traditions, religions receive wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. So there's this theme of self-expression and self-happiness and self-definition. The third belief that drives how we think about our lives and the world The world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology will motor this progression toward utopia. The fourth belief. The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. The fifth belief. Humans are inherently good. Six. Large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. If you live in the Bay Area, you either know a whole lot of people that think this way or you yourself think this way. And the author Mark Sayers points out that these beliefs are held by all groups on both sides of the political spectrum, conservative and liberal, by the free market economists and the leftist socialists, by um, hippies and free spirits and entrepreneurs, those with uh, that wear a suit and tie. And he continues on. He says this. These beliefs have not so much been argued as assumed. They are not enforced. Rather, they are imbibed. We do not receive them as intellectual propaganda to be obeyed. Instead, they are communicated to us at an almost subconscious level through the high priests of advertising and the techno-prophets of Silicon Valley. And this is the type of thinking that dominates our culture. This is the wisdom of the age, as Paul puts it. And Paul makes this provocative statement in verse 6. He says, everyone that believes this, everyone that pushes this, they are doomed to pass away. That means that the message they push is doomed for destruction and death. And why? Paul says that this is temporal. This is the culmination of generations of philosophical and social movements. This is the trajectory across history that's been one of increasing trust in the ability of humans. You probably 
have heard many people talk about how they can define themselves, how they can define their own um, trajectory and where they're going to go in life. It's all up to them. This is apart from any objective reality outside themselves. And there is, to those who say otherwise, people like preachers or the church who say, no, there's actually an objective reality outside of your own preferences. They will be suspicious of people who say that, who object to their thinking. And Paul, he's writing of this wisdom of this age. He's referring to this philosophy that that drives how we live. And whether it's in the first century Corinthian church, like he's writing to, or the 21st century here in the Bay Area, this is fundamentally the same. We all have fundamentally the same belief, which is life apart from God is the best way to live. And even if we are in the church, we have a temptation to believe this lie. This is true of you and me, if I can say that. If we believe that we need to look inward to find the real us. Have you ever heard people say, I just need to get away and I need to find myself. Rather than your creator then you've bought into this type of temporal wisdom. If you think that joy and meaning is found in more life experiences, if I travel more, if I have um, X amount of children, if I get married, if I'm in this type of relationship, if you think joy and meaning are found in things like that rather than worshiping and serving God, then you've bought into this wisdom of the age. If If we think that the people around us are barriers to our happiness rather than the people that God gives us in community, whether it's in your family or this church, then perhaps you've believed the wisdom of the age. If we think that we deserve all that we possess, everything that is in my bank account or in my home, I've earned it. If you think that rather than thanking God for everything that he gives you, you believe the wisdom of the age. If we believe that we can shape our lives without submitting to the Lord of our lives, if our comfort and safety is what we want most for our children, if we protect our reputations more than we protect the reputation of Jesus, then we've fallen for the wisdom of this age. And this is tough for us to hear because we think of this by default, so many of us, And it's so respectable to think like that. Hardly anyone will say anything to challenge that type of thinking. But the church, God's word, has something to say to it. And we can say that there is so much more than this. We're not just um, trying to throw a wet blanket on people that believe this. We're saying that there is something so much better and greater than that. Um, Maybe 15 or so years ago, a, a film um, entitled Little Miss Sunshine. Um, it's this like kind of cute, quirky film. Um, there's a scene in which there's a, a character named Dwayne, and he is the teenage son of this family, this very eccentric, dysfunctional family. And his whole thing is he's a mute. Um, he doesn't speak, and he is super stoic. He tries not to show too much expression. And his dream is to become a jet pilot. And... While they're driving in their van, his little sister, who's maybe eight or nine years old, she's giving Dwayne just one of these vision tests. Um, if you've ever seen them, there's uh, like blotches of color and there's numbers or letters inside. And she asks her brother, like, what number do you see? And he's like, 
I, I, I don't see anything. And um, his family tells him, no, there's, there's a number in there. And that's when he realizes he's colorblind. And when he realizes he's colorblind, he starts panicking. And then he's mute throughout the whole movie. He doesn't say anything. The first time he makes any noise is when he realizes he's colorblind because he starts screaming. Because what does it mean? It means that his dream of becoming a, a jet pilot, it's not going to happen because he is colorblind. His uncle says, you can't fly jets if you're colorblind. And he curses. He runs out of the car, the van, and he, he curses at the sky and he pounds his fists on the ground, he went through 17 years of his life not having a clue that he was colorblind. He planned his whole life around the fact that he would eventually become a fighter jet pilot. This is a job that requires perfect vision, and now his dreams have fallen apart. He's unable to see an aspect of reality that he never knew existed. And I think this is such a picture of how it is for us. We may not be colorblind, but we're ignorant to the blindness to a realm that we never imagined can exist. And referring back to C.S. Lewis, he says, this is the world that we were created for. And we're ignorant of that. We don't know that we belong to this other world. And our job as a church is to point out to the world, you're colorblind. You don't see what you're supposed to see. We're supposed to be a witness to what reality really is. Our friends, our families, our neighbors were made for another world. And only the gospel can address their need. Only the gospel can point them to this other world. So that's the temporal wisdom, the temporal um, wisdom of the world that we so easily get sucked up into. But there is an alternate. Our second point is the timeless wisdom of God. So the wisdom of this, of this age is based on the forward movement, the progression of individuals and society. And this is called progressivism. I don't mean this as a um, political term, um, progressives and conservatives. I, I, what I mean is that there is this thinking, this concept of constant progress, that humanity is always on an upward trajectory, that there is always something to look forward to, and if we treat ourselves as we should, if we work harder, if we become more educated, then we can progress as a society. The author Mark Sayers again says this, this is the foundation of the belief that Western developed culture is more progressive, enlightened, and evolved than other cultures. Hope then lies not in God, but in being but in being on the right side of history. There is this belief that humanity's hope is found in a forward movement, in fulfilling our human potential. This is casting off the human, the, the chains of religion and superstition, because what good does that serve us? But Paul says to those who are being saved, verse 7, Paul speaks of another type of wisdom. He says this, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He's saying there is more. Verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
And here Paul is referring to the rulers of the age who were, who were responsible for putting Jesus to death. You can count among those people the Sanhedrin, the Pontius Pilate, King Herod, those who called for the death of Jesus. They had no idea what they were doing. They thought that they were putting an end to this destructive social movement that this weird guy named Jesus began because he was a threat to their power. But what they were really doing is they were really carrying out God's will without knowing it. The wisdom of God, as revealed in the scriptures, says that in the act of crucifixion, God used wicked, evil men to put to death the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was God's good and glorious purpose in redeeming us. D.A. Carson writes this, It was God's matchless grace and wisdom that provided revelation clear enough to be understood after the events to which it pointed had occurred, but veiled enough that rebellious sinners would, would in some measure, misinterpret it and put it together in wrong ways. So this is tied to verse 7. Um, Paul, Paul tells us that this is what God created before, what God decreed before the ages for our glory. Everything that happened before the death of Christ, everything that happened because of the death of Christ, everything that happened after the death of Christ, all of these things happened not just so that there would be content for this old ancient book. God did all these things for your glory. Now consider the struggles you faced over the course of your life. Consider all the anxiety and suffering and pain. Consider all the things that keep you up at night. Consider all that has happened in your life that you thought, why in the world is this happening? And the wisdom of this age would tell you that you are responsible for fixing it. The wisdom of this age would tell you that you are responsible for building yourself up. You are responsible for piecing your life together when things fall apart. But this passage tells us something different. It says that God uses wicked men and evil acts and terrible tragedies for good, not just for good, but for our ultimate good for our salvation. And this is the glory that we're destined for. And that's, that, that means that what seems pointless to us has a God-ordained purpose. The wisdom of God says that you've never been left alone. The wisdom of God says that before the troubles ever came your way, God was plotting out exactly how they would work for your good. Even the most painful events the most lonely nights, the most confusing seasons, the most stressful circumstances, they are for your glory. God designed it because he loves you. And this is the uncomfortable truth that we've spoken of from the pulpit, that God uses uses suffering and pain far more often to achieve his purposes than Comforts. And if this is true, we can know that our suffering has eternal significance. We do not need to despair like those without hope. 
Romans 8.28, you know this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.31-32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give, also with him graciously give us all things? God has been doing all these things for your glory. What you could not imagine, God has been working toward it. We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians 4, seven. If you believe that the wisdom of God is real, what Paul is writing about in this passage, then we can have a peace that cannot be explained with the vocabulary that we know. There can be a stability to our souls that keeps us intact when we would otherwise collapse. The trouble of our lives may be deep, but the peace of God goes deeper still. Paul moves into verse 9 and he tells us how we can know that this is true. Verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This quote is the uh, combination of two passages from the book of Isaiah. Um, they're, they're written to refer to what's been hidden in the past, but are now revealed to those who follow Jesus Paul is telling us that before the wisdom of God was expressed in the crucifixion of Jesus, God was already whispering it. He was giving us hints, saying, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen for good. It was written in the Old Testament through the prophets. The Jewish scriptures were filled with references about this coming figure that would come, the Messiah that would come once and for all to rescue God's people. And this was written not when the Bible began. This was written before time ever existed. First Peter 1 says this, Jesus Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus Christ was chosen before the creation of the world. And in Revelation 13, it says that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The crucifixion of Jesus was written into history before it ever happened. God didn't allow the fall of creation or your pain and suffering to happen before he made provision for the restoration of all things. He didn't allow sin to exist before first making a way for forgiveness. He did not plan all the hardships in your life before he weaved every element of your life together so that the pain and suffering would serve his purpose, not just for your glo- for his glory, but for your glory as well. And the gospel is this, that we were made to, to know our creator God But we all gave in to the wisdom of the ages, this temporary wisdom, which meant that we tried to live apart from God. And the natural consequence of that is death and damnation and eternity apart from God. But in his love and in his wisdom, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to receive the judgment on our behalf. He rose from the dead three days later. And this is the wisdom of God. And if we believe this, If we really get it, then we can know this God who loves us so deeply. We can receive new life today 
and one day eternally. There is, um, I'm going to refer to C.S. Lewis again. I won't, I'll try not to refer to him for the next like two or three months. So here's my C.S. Lewis quota for uh, the next <laughs> rest of the year, maybe. Um, he, if in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, if you're familiar with it, there is this one scene, the, the climax of the book in which Edmund, he commits an act of treason, and it's an act, of, act that requires him to be put to death. And this is, if you remember the uh, antagonist of the story, there is the, uh, the, the witch, and there is Aslan, the lion, this Christ figure who stands in Edmund's place. Edmund's supposed to die, but this lion, he says... I will die in his place. He lays his life down on the stone tablets. The lion, the Christ figure, dies. The two girls who are closest to Aslan, their names are Lucy and Susan, they fall into despair when their friend, the lion, has died. And this is, I'm going to read to you kind of an extended quote from this book. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. Have you ever felt what Lucy and Susan felt? Lucy and Susan hang their heads thinking that this is the end of their story. And then they hear the stone table that the lion died on crack. They fear that something even more awful has happened. They look back and see that, that the stone tablet was broken into two pieces by a great crack, and Aslan is nowhere to be seen. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic... There is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And I suspect that C.S. Lewis was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2 right before this. Do you know that we live under the power of a deeper magic? This is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom that the rulers of this age, that all the CEOs and publishers, all the influencers on social media... None of them can provide this type of wisdom. They may have an optimism that things will get better, but this is rooted in what they can achieve. 
It's rooted in something that might happen if we play our cards right and if the circumstances allow or if the right politicians do the right things, then things will get better. But it's rooted in human potential. Nothing more. In other words, the wisdom of this age is untethered. And Paul says this type of thinking is doomed to pass away. This type of thinking will be destroyed. When you go on social media and you hear people tell you, these are the things you do to be happy. If it's not rooted in Christ, just think, this person is doomed. This message will be destroyed. This is what Paul is saying in this passage. But what does the wisdom of God say? It provides for us a hope that's rooted in what has already been done the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what stands at the center of all history. This is what our lives are tethered to. This is why Indelible Grace Church exists. Everything is about this. This is the wisdom that we must be built upon. If you are a follower of Jesus, you belong to another age. You belong to another reality. And again, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that God raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, you are seated in the heavenly places. When you're sitting at your desk, at home or in the office, if you're working in the office, when you're tired of being a parent, when you're tired of trying to work out all the logistical aspects of your life, when you're trying to figure out how to love your spouse or your coworkers or your parents well, when you're scrubbing the toilet or doing the dishes, when you're looking at your phone at lunchtime and you see that the market has dropped 5% this week, when your hopes for that one type of lifestyle or that one thing, when those things vanish, still you are seated in the heavenly places. That gives perspective to everything that happens in our life. And this is true because we do not ultimately belong to this age. It means that we as a church have a message to bring to the world. We should stand in stark contrast to what everything else is being said. And consider with me the weight of the text, especially verse 9 again. When no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If you've ever been to a Christian funeral, you might have heard this verse before. Um, it's referring to something, as if it's referring to something distant and in the future. But um, if you're ever at a funeral and they read that, It's beautiful. Um, They're taking it a little bit out of context, though, because it's not referring to what is going to happen in the future. It's referring to something that has happened. Verse 10, it says that these things God has revealed to us. This is the past tense. This is the unimaginable glory that Paul is telling us about in 1 Corinthians. This is the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world. 
Now look at verse 9 again. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What is the most beautiful thing that you can imagine? If you truly believed that the gospel was that, what would your life look like? What would our church look like? Would you not want more of that? Would we not want to sing about it more? Would we not want to tell others about it? And let me ask us, myself, a few questions. Do you think that there's something that is of more value in your life than the gospel? Is there anything in your life that you think, I cannot imagine anything better than that? If you think, whatever it is, I really, really want the ultimate thing in my life is something that I can work hard to attain or achieve by luck or by grit? Is there anything in your life like that? Are there multiple things like that? If there is, then you're not getting it yet. I'm not getting it yet. If there is something in my life that is more beautiful to me than the gospel, if you can imagine something better than the gospel, then you don't get it yet. If you're bored when you hear the gospel explained, then you don't get it yet. Because the gospel is unimaginably good and glorious. Some of us don't get it yet. And I don't say this to guilt you, because you can't understand the heart of the gospel by trying harder you can't feel the weight of it by going through some religious program. You can't feel the weight of it just by going to church on Sundays. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It doesn't matter how good the preacher is. You can come to this church every single Sunday for 12 years. That's how long we've been in existence. You can still not get it. If you're trying to understand it in a way that will move you emotionally and intellectually down to the core of your being, if you really want, if it doesn't make sense to you yet and you really want that, then I have bad news for you. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. The gospel is not going to be unimaginably good to you if you're just trying harder. You can't truly understand the beauty of the gospel in your heart of hearts. But you must. But you must. Or for those of us who have spent a lot of time in these contexts, maybe the gospel was once alive to us. Maybe at some point in our lives, our souls pulsated at the thought of the gospel. And yet, what is it now? It's dull and boring and rote. I can say that because it's true of me. And maybe it's true of you. That you come and hear the gospel... And you can walk away and go, that was fine. And you think of something else that's better than Jesus. Our hearts might be cold and we've forgotten how good it is. So what? And this is the last point, the revelation of the spirits. I read verse 10 just a minute ago. But I didn't read the whole sentence to you, so let me read the whole sentence to you now. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit must move if this is to make sense of us. The Spirit of God must move in your being for the gospel to be unimaginably glorious to you. The work that we do here at Indelible Grace Church is impossible, no matter how good your leaders are, no matter how good the programs are. It is impossible for me to preach a good sermon that will move you down to your core unless the Spirit is working. So we need to be a church that relies completely on the Spirit. In order for the gospel to make sense in our hearts, in order for the gospel to make sense in the hearts of those who will visit this church or listen to us online, the Spirit has to be moving. And that means that we need to submit to what the Spirit of God is doing. What is God telling you? What is the Spirit moving you to do? This church will go nowhere if you don't listen to what the Spirit of God is telling you. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. And we need to understand for, that for those who live by the wisdom of this age, their problem, problem is not ultimately a thinking problem. It is a sin problem. It is a defect in the heart. We were created to know and love God, and yet we don't. And if there are people in our lives that need to be changed, it's not because they're not informed enough. It's because the Spirit of God has not moved. And when we minister to them, it has to be done by the power of the Spirit. What can we as a church say to them? Can we strong arm people into loving God? Can we study and read more books and come up with better illustrations and stories? Or will we trust in the invisible God? Will we beg him to send his spirit to open the eyes of the blind? Will we pray? Will we pray? What will IGC be like? I hope it's in the power of the Spirit. As a church, we need to see our work primarily as spiritual. That means that we don't try to manipulate people. We don't try to corner them. We don't try to be cute or novel or sexy or innovative. We just try to be faithful. We preach and teach the Word of God. We listen to what He has to say to us in His Word, and then we act in obedience. We reflect on our own sins, and then we repent of them. We love each other, and we love the world consistently and sacrificially. And then we trust that the Spirit of God will do what He wants. And if we did that day in and day out, week after week, month by month, I bet you that IGC will look completely different in five years. If it's done in the power of the Spirit faithfully. And there's a lot more to say. When I, I'm going to, by... by um, Grace of God, um, if the Lord wills, I'll be back here in three weeks and um, we'll talk about what Paul is saying. What does it mean to do ministry in the power of the Spirit and to live by the Spirit and to open the eyes of the blind by the power of the Spirit? Um, I will leave it at that. Let me pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not left to ourselves to make sense of it, but the Spirit works and make sense of it for us in our hearts, God. And I pray that you continue to do your work here at IUC, God. Uh, may your spirits be uh, active. May we submit to your spirits.
and may you get the glory, and may we understand the glory that that belongs to us now because the gospel is true. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.